morning, good morning. Welcome again to Trinity Heights. Good to see everyone this morning. Um, hope you're having a good weekend so far. Uh, we've been having a great weekend with some really good friends of ours who we haven't seen in a couple of years. And that, I've got to say that's got to be one of the best things about the end of the pandemic or the, uh, the new phase of the pandemic. What are we calling it, John? He's an infectious disease guy. What are we calling this? Is this the end? If you say it's the end, we'll call it. You heard, you heard it here first. It's over. <laughs> I, 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 just hear, I just hear what I want to hear. Um, but uh, yeah, it's got to be one of the best things uh, about the, <laughs> getting close to the end of this pandemic is, is just this uh, being able to reunite with old friends and, and just be together again. My goodness. Okay, so this morning uh, we're in our fifth part of our series on the Sermon on the Mount, Mountain of Salt, City of Light. And I'm just going to read to you from Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. I'm going to jump around a little bit here. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Okay, so what I've tried to do is I've tried to come up with uh, a word for each week of this series that we've had so far. So a single word that sums up that particular week's message. And these are the words that I've come up with. Week one, event. Week two, posture. Week three, promise. Week four, denouement. And so it's clear that the Sermon on the Mount is not just good moral teaching. It's not just a nice ethical system. But the very fact that Jesus is teaching on a mountain is supposed to evoke all those other mountains in the Old Testament. Mount Ararat, Mount Sinai, Mount Carmel, Mount Moriah. Those places which become the threshold of God's intervention on behalf of humanity. And so the fact that Jesus is teaching on this mountain, uh, he is inviting us he's to hear the Sermon on the Mount, to see this sermon as the event, the event of God's intervention on behalf of humanity. And in week two, we said that it is in this event, through this event, that Jesus calls us to take on a very particular posture. The posture of those who are mourning, the posture of those who are meek, the posture of those who are poor in spirit, the posture of those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Because as we said in week three, it is through us taking on this posture that God wants to affirm his covenant and commitment and promise to his creation. Because salt and light, we said, are not just salt and light, but salt and light are covenant symbols, they're symbols of the promise. And then in week four, we looked at this interesting phrase, the law and the prophets. And we said that the law and the prophets do not just refer to the 613 laws that you will find throughout the Old Testament. 
But actually, this is a typical first century Jewish way of referring to the entire story of God's intention for humanity and the rest of his creation as told in Jewish literature. So that when Jesus comes and says, I have not come to abolish, but I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he's not saying, I've come to be the perfect rule follower. He's saying, I, he's essentially saying, I am the denouement. I am the denouement of the entire canon of Jewish literature. I am the denouement of the entire story of humanity. I'm that place where all the threads of the human story are being gathered up. They're being gathered up in me. He's that nexus moment. Okay, so that's uh, my way of a summary of where we've been the last four weeks. Uh, and I'll have another word for the fifth week as, as well. We'll put that up in, in just a minute. But uh, it is only now, after all this event, posture, promise, denouement, that we can now finally, in week five, arrive at Jesus' ethical teaching. We arrive at Jesus' moral instruction. But now perhaps we can hear it not as a, a bunch of arbitrary, random, abstract rules, but we might be able to hear it as a sort of outworking of all of this that we've already been talking about. So we approach Jesus' moral teaching. We arrive here in week five. And no sooner do we get here that there is a problem. And the problem is that it seems as though Jesus is creating a contradiction. It feels as though Jesus is creating a dichotomy um, between his teaching and Old Testament Jewish beliefs. Because there's a phrase that he uses, and he uses it six times, and it comes before each one of his moral instructions, and the phrase is this, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Doesn't that, doesn't that sound as if he's introducing a new teaching that is going to sort of annul the, the Jewish traditional belief? And, and uh, it certainly sounds as if he's saying, well, this is all wrong, but now I'm going to show you the, the right way. This is what's right. I'm, I'm going to put this right. Um, this is why this has often been called, this section is often called the antithetical sayings. The antithetical sayings of Jesus. It's often referred to that, that way. You have heard it said, but I say to you. But uh, let's, let's take a little closer look at, at this. Uh, let's take a for example, um, the first application Jesus makes. You have heard it said that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, I tell you that a little bit of murder never hurt anyone, and uh, that it's uh, okay under certain circumstances. Obviously, he's not saying God has prohibited murder, but, uh, but I say to you, uh, murder is a rather complex ethical issue, uh, and uh, we need to discuss it. And think it through. He's, he's not. So another example would be, you've heard it said long ago that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, go and cheat and lie and deceive as much as you like. Um, obviously, Jesus isn't abolishing anything here. What Jesus is doing is he's, he's doing the opposite. Actually, what he's doing is he's intensifying. He's not abolishing these commandments, he's intensifying these commandments. It's called, often referred to as the intensification of Torah, Torah intensification. He's intensifying these commandments. And what Jesus wants to do is he wants to take these rules that are often seen as a sort of a rigid structure on the outside of us. And he wants to take them and he wants to put them right there on the inside of us. Did, did any of you take music lessons? I know some of you took music lessons. Okay, so you won't, some of you will not be able to relate to this, this but look, when I was, um, I can't forget how old I was, but I started off with recorder when I was a kid. 
And I was, my parents were so impressed with how I did not practice for any of my lessons. They thought, we've got to give this talented, lazy boy a shot at not practicing at piano lessons as well. Uh, and so that's what they did. I started going to piano lessons and I didn't practice for any of those either. Uh, and so, you know how it is, you start off with a scale of C, and your fingers are all messed up and, and you're trying to read the music and you're playing the wrong notes and it's halted and it's stilted and, and it's a mess. So unfortunately for me, these uh, rules of music always remain a rigid structure uh, out imposed from the outside. But of course, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? When, when you see a kid who's actually practiced and, and then one day you're sitting in a concert hall and there's this concert pianist and there, there is no gap between the rules of music and that human being. The, 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 the rules of music and that human being are sort of merged. You could say there is a total integrity there is total integrity between the world of music and that, and that person. Um, and, and so some of you will be able to relate to that because you, that's how you experience the rules of music, right? It's not this rigid thing that's being imposed from the outside. Um, and so that, that's, the, that's the fifth word. That's, the one, uh, that's how I'd like to characterize Jesus, the, the sort of direction and force of Jesus' moral teaching uh, as with integrity. Not as in fine, upstanding person, but integrity, that process of making something whole and making it undivided. So Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made, but I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. All you need to say is simply yes or no. I actually prefer the, the old version of this, which just says, just you let your yes be yes, and your no be no. I, I like that version. But look, it's, it's no longer, obviously Jesus is saying, it's no longer just the act of murder as horrific as that is, but it's all the little steps that I took in my heart, which starts off with pettiness and peevish resentment, which soon becomes bitterness, which becomes hatred, which becomes anger that's verbalized, which becomes violence, which becomes murder. And it's, not, it's no longer just the act of adultery, as horrible as that might be, but it's, it's about all the covetousness and all the lust that goes on, all those steps that no one can see but are going on inside me that lead me there. And it's no longer just about saying, well, did I take the right legal steps so that I can say, I divorced my husband or I divorced my wife legally and lawfully. But it's how dare you divorce yourself emotionally from your spouse in that way? those steps that we took in our hearts that led us there. And, and it's, it's not, you know, did, did, you, um, did you make this big public vow and, and promise? But it's put your sanctimony aside for just one moment. Put it aside for one moment. Can you be a man or woman of your word? So Jesus is, is driving for integrity, pulling together our, our inner world and our outer world and I actually think that this is something very difficult in our, in our culture to, to aim for. I, I don't think that our particular cultural moment actually nurtures this 
uh, or creates an environment which would push us or drive us in that direction at all. I, th I think it's the opposite. I think our culture puts us in a situation where, where the inner and outer world gets pushed further and further, get pulled further and further apart. Um, and, and so, you know, sometimes it's a little difficult uh, to know what's going on in our culture because it's like asking a fish, what, what's water like? Um, that's a, that sort of question, isn't it? Um, you know, I've actually learned more coming and living in America about British culture than I would have just staying within British culture. I learned everything I could living in England, right? But then I come over here, or I lived in Mexico for three years, and suddenly I just have this other perspective, or a Mexican perspective and an American perspective on British culture. Um, and so like, similar to something I was saying last week, if you ever get the chance to engage with someone who, who has just not lived their entire, they've spent most of their life outside of American culture. It's really worth sitting down with them and saying, hey, give, give me the, the pros and cons. Give me the strengths and weaknesses. What, what do you see the good and bad? What's the good, the bad, the ugly that you see as, as a cultural outsider uh, of American culture? It's, it's a really worthwhile uh, thing to do. Um, so anyway, in that spirit, I want to talk about this guy. Uh, this is, uh, some of you know him, he's the, the Chinese artist and political dissident Ai Weiwei. Uh, I think he's spent his life as a cultural outsider, uh, not, not just outside of Western culture where he's living now, but um, outside of his own Chinese culture in many ways, because he's a political dissident, because he's an artist. So 10 days after the, the earthquakes, uh, in Sichuan province in May 2008. Uh, I led a team of sur to survey and film the conditions in various disaster zones. So, so many students had died uh, simply because of substandard uh, school buildings. Uh, but the government didn't want to reveal the numbers or the names of any of those, those children and uh, the students who died. And so what he did is he recruited volunteers online and he launched what he called a citizen's investigation. Um, so on March 20th, 2009, he posted a blog titled Citizens Investigation, and he wrote, uh, to remember the departed, to show concern for life, to take responsibility, and for the potential happiness of the survivors, we are initiating a citizen's investigation. We will seek out the names of each departed child, and we will remember them. So, you know, what he's after, of course, is integrity integrity between what actually happened and, and, the, and the way it was being dealt with in the public sphere. So in, in April 2009, the list had accumulated 5,385 names. Um, I published uh, the collected names of the children who died on his blog, and he also posted the lists on the wall of his studio. The blog was shut down by the Chinese authorities the following month. Later in uh, 2009, he was attacked and beaten by the police. And later it was discovered he was actually having an internal hemorrhaging and he had to have, uh, while he was in Germany, have an emergency uh, brain surgery. Um, upon his return to China, two accounts of his had been hacked and their contents read and copied. His bank accounts were investigated by state security agents who claimed that he was under investigation for unspecified suspected crimes. He was eventually arrested and held without charge for 80 days. And since then, he's left China and he's moved to Europe. So obviously, Ai Weiwei is someone who under, understands what integrity is. He understands what the totalitarian state is and how that works. And, and he understands how that cultural context 
makes it very difficult to have integrity. There's no integrity on the public sphere, and, and so that makes it very, very difficult to have integrity on, on the personal, individual level, right? Um, so that much is clear. Uh, so, so that's by way of introduction to this man, uh, because well, we need that background so that we can hear what he has to say about our own cultural context. Uh, this is not a voice that is easy to dismiss. He, he's, he's someone of integrity, and, and he knows what that can cost. So in a recent interview uh, with PBS, uh, he, he suggests that America is actually already hurtling towards, or if not already, in a totalitarian situation. And you can tell as, as he says this, the, the person interviewing him just looks at him a little bit bemused and, and puzzled by what he's saying, and then she becomes increasingly uncomfortable. And he says, look, what you need in a totalitarian situation is for there to be remarkable uniformity, remarkable alignment between all the major public cultural institutions. What are the major cultural institutions? And he says, in America, you've got remarkable uniformity amongst the different major cultural institutions. Um, the media, elite educational institutions, permanent political class, security state, intelligence agencies, Wall Street, Hollywood, big tech, the public face of all of these. Well, well think of what are the moral issues, what are the social issues, what are the political issues where they have this clear divergence? It hardly ever happens, if at all. There's a remarkable uniformity amongst the major cultural institutions, he says. Then, he says, the other thing you need for a totalitarian situation is for everyone to understand in the broader society that, if, that there is a payoff if you actually align yourself with the public face of all of these institutions. There's, there's, a, there's a payoff for it. And, of course, everyone in the broader society has to understand that if you don't align yourself and you have a divergent view from any of these institutions, which are already aligned with each other, then there's a cost to pay. There's a social cost. There's going to be some sort of price to pay. And he says, well, that is the situation that he sees in America right now. And these conditions should concern us because they don't create integrity, they don't foster integrity, they create hypocrisy. Because what we end up doing is we focus intensely on our outward performance, right? We, we focus intensely on uh, the sort of performative actions and our external behavior, which everyone can see, right? And what we do is we learn to hide ourselves from each other. And we learn to sort of stuff things deep down. And we discover that this growing chasm between our inner and outer life is actually deadly. And it's deadly because what it creates is a growing chasm between each other. So while people are posting, let's say, um, stop Asian hate or posting black squares, right? right? What's actually going on in people's hearts and I've had these conversations, very honest conversations with people, there's something else going on. And it's dark. And so what happens is, is that there's this chasm that grows between our inner and outer life, and there's this chasm that grows between, between ourselves. And eventually you get to this point where you might as well say, well, look, here's this mask. <laughs> Go and have a relationship with this mask. You don't have access to me. You have less and less access to me, shrinking access to me. Go and have a relationship with this, with this mask. Now, my aim here this morning is not to complain. You know, some people complain and they think they're being prophetic. Look how bad things are. Everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Okay, that, that's not my aim this morning. I don't think that's prophetic. That's just whining. I do whine and I do complain. Some of you get to hear me do that a lot. 
Um, be quiet, Ras. Uh, so uh, some of you here get to hear me complain a lot, but I'm not complaining this morning because I have no right to complain. We have no right to complain because the reality is the majority of Christians actually today live in far more totalitarian, situ harsher situations than we have ever experienced or ever will experience depending on what we may or may not be hurtling towards, perhaps, maybe, right? Um, and my aim is also not to say, put on the brakes, we've got, to, we've got to stop, we've got to stop this heading that direction, we mustn't let society go that way. Look, my pastoral concern this morning has nothing to do with the state of America, okay? We'll leave that to the president, we'll give a State of the Union address, all right? It's nothing to do with the state of America. My concern this morning is to do with the state of the church. And, and to ask the question, look, given these circumstances, given these circumstances, um, what would it mean for us to be uh, to, to actually be a, an alternative, an alternative community. So I actually see this instead of complaining. I actually see this as an amazing, an amazing opportunity for the church. I mean, think about this with me for a moment. In a culture which is becoming emotionally and socially coercive, um, wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if the church became a place which offered people somewhere to come and just be? Be what? No, no, just don't worry about that. What? Just, just be, for now, just be, without any emotional, social coercion. Now, I know that there are many junctures in church history where the church has been the central cultural institution and has demanded everyone else conform, right? I, I know that's happened. Uh, and there is, what's amazing is that there are some Christians and churches who still operate that way and think that they are in medieval Christendom or, or that really or that ought to be the situation. It's a, it's, it's a little bit like uh, when, when uh, America and her allies were about to invade and occupy Iraq. I don't know if any of you, some of you are too young to remember this, but some of you might remember this. Saddam Hussein actually appealed to the Pope. He made an appeal to the Pope as if papal authority still reached that far, as if the papal hand could restrain the American empire. Uh, and it was just this really surreal moment. But, you know, there's some churches that still operate, you know, where the central cultural institution, you all ought to behave this way and we'll judge you by these standards. And, and that's, but, but uh, what I'm saying is we don't want that. What I'm saying is, wouldn't it be amazing in a more totalitarian culture which is going heavy on the social coercion and manipulation, which is focused on outward performance, where we learn to hide ourselves from each other. Wouldn't it be amazing if we did the opposite and we provided a place where people didn't have to hide, but could just be? And don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that we ditch our morality and anything and everything goes. Obviously, Jesus is not doing that. We've already said he's not abolishing these commandments. He's intensifying them but we will never get to this project unless we first enter into a community where we can be ourselves, where we can come as we are. And only then can we begin this journey with Jesus toward integrity. It's actually what I wanna hear people saying. It's not I agree with you, Right, like you were saying earlier, it's not about agreement, but it's about saying actually, just, this could be our litmus test. You know, you know where I feel like I can be myself, the place in in my life where I can just be, it's in the church community. And unlikely, that may not sound very likely. Who's going to say that? But actually, I've had numerous conversations with people over the last few years since we've been doing this Trinity Heights thing together. And it's been the best moments when people have said that is exactly why. I'm here.
So whenever someone tells me this, you know, I'm thrilled because I know what's happening is that together we are valuing authenticity over performance, truth over lies, reality over fiction, honesty over deception. We're valuing what Jesus values, integrity. It also means that together we're creating a space where there is grace. Grace enough where people can begin by being honest, which is the beginning of the journey toward human flourishing that Jesus is inviting us on. Praise God for 